We love them so much. They are such wonderful and beautiful little representations of you. Help us to uh, protect them. Help us to teach them what it means to be a follower of you. Help us to teach them what it means to be a member of your kingdom, to love one another as you have loved us, that we love all the people that you loved. We help all the people that you helped. Jesus, please be a fence around them, protect them, keep them safe, and help them to grow strong in your word and your love. In the name of your son, amen. Bye, kids. Love you guys. Thanks for coming. Yay. All right. <clears throat> no, they clap for the kids, but not the announcements. That's true. Although, I will say, those might have been some of the best announcements I've ever heard in the history of announcements. They were really good. Thanks, brother. I like it when she asks for money so I don't have to. That's what I really like. I hate asking for money. I'm Joe. I'm the pastor here at Grace Life, and um, we're continuing with our series uh, on the Gospel of Mark called Mark the Evangelist. And for those of you that aren't aware, we have this little Twitter feed that Mark set up, not me. I, did, I would never do that. Um, because the Gospel of Mark really does read like a Twitter feed. It's very fast and quick moving, and he gives uh, just the highlights of an event and then moves on to the next one. But they're powerful narratives. And this week, the title of the message is Authority from Heaven. This is week five already of the Gospel of Mark. Pretty amazing. So a couple questions for you. Have you ever experienced that feeling that something is evil? See, evil, sensing evil, feeling evil, seeing evil is really not a topic we like to talk about too much in church. And our first reaction when we have that sense is to dismiss it, explain it away. Oh, that's just a figment of my imagination, or that didn't really happen, or I'm sure there's a, a rational, logical explanation, and there could be. But the reason we are willing to do that so quickly is most of you are uncomfortable even talking about evil, especially in a church service. Some of you are cringing already with how I've started this thing. But you know it exists. But really... Many of you don't take it very seriously. It's something that's out there, not in here. And what are the reasons that we would rather avoid it or dismiss it? I think it's fear of its unknown nature, maybe, fear of its power. It is much more comfortable for Christians to focus on grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion and loving one another, and then especially our own little liturgies. Ironically, though, evil is one of the best proofs of the existence of God. Because the concepts of good and evil don't exist unless there are moral absolutes. Without moral absolutes, it's all just one person's opinion, and it can vary from person to person. Oh, that's not evil. That's evil. No, that's not evil. That's evil. And so really, there's no dividing line. But when you recognize there is a moral absolute authority in the universe then the concept of good and evil now becomes logical and rational. Without a moral absolute, morality is just moral relativism. That's the only rational conclusion for good and evil if you don't believe in the authority of a God. So today, what we're going to do, even though it might be a little uncomfortable and concerning and maybe frightening, 
We're going to try to tackle evil head on, even if it makes you uncomfortable, because in the end it will strengthen your faith. So here's the passage from Mark today. Chapter 1, verse 21 to 28. This is after all that's happened so far with the wilderness and, and calling Peter and John, telling them to drop their nets. We talked about what are your nets last week. Well, this week we're talking about evil. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Zip it. (laughs) Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So you understand why we have to preach about evil. Because it's very real and evident. So what we do each passage, we look at history. What about man? What did he do? And then we look at the theology. What about God? What does he do? And then the devotional, spiritual. What about me? What do I do? So let's talk about the history. Jesus goes to church. For you to understand what's going on here, let me explain to you what's happening between scribes and synagogues in the first century. So first of all, Capernaum was a very key stop. It was a big trading route between Damascus and the Mediterranean Sea. And so it's a good strategy if you're going to start publicly speaking to start there because the audience is going to be both Jews and Gentiles, a lot of Jews local and passing through the trade route. So people are going to hear a message and take it on to the next place. You won't believe what I heard in Capernaum. Now, the word synagogue means come together. They were, in essence, the local churches, the local assemblies during that time. A little bit of history about synagogues. The whole idea of a synagogue, a a place where Jewish people would gather together to worship, it did not exist. It wasn't even a thing until they were captured by the Babylonians in about 580 B.C. And the temple is destroyed, so now they have no place to worship. So they begin to, out of necessity, worship in these smaller groups, in these places where they're gathered together. They learn the Torah. And after a while, these synagogues become culturally embedded just like churches, but Jewish. And by the time of Jesus, we have a historical record in the Talmud that says there were 500 synagogues in Jerusalem alone. Now, understand, that's what synagogues are. Let me tell you how scribes play into this. Scribes were so critical to the first century Jewish culture and the idea of the synagogue gathering together type of church system. They were the authority of interpretation when it came to the law and the prophets. They looked after all the written copies of the word of God. They ran the synagogues. They were in charge of each one of them. They had seats on the Sanhedrin. They were real power brokers, both politically and religiously. And what was going on at the time, right? People are always looking for something new, something fresh from rabbis. They want to find the latest, hippest, hottest rabbi. And once they heard one of the rabbis teaching, they'd say, this is interesting, but I'm not going to buy in until I hear the scribes weigh in on its validity. 
And the scribes would have to say, yes, we give that our stamp of approval. That is an excellent teaching. Or, I'm sorry, that is not good teaching. It was sort of like the Oprah Winfrey book club for rabbis. You know, if she comes out and says, I've been trying to get her to approve of the grace life, and she hasn't done it yet, but, but uh, maybe my next one. But when Oprah would, you know, okay, a book, people just buy it like crazy. Even if they never read it, they just buy it. Well, that's what would happen if you were a rabbi and you had some teaching that was new and fresh and different and interesting. The scribes would say, okay, yeah, that, that's not bad. You can teach it here. But Jesus takes a new approach. Something about Jesus made people say, he teaches like he runs this place. He's not a scribe. How does he know so much? Who is this guy to come in here and preach like this? He did something different. He did not talk about what the scribes were saying. He didn't care about what the Pharisees and the other rabbis were doing. What he did, that whole system of rabbis and then scribes approving and then... He just bypassed the whole thing. <laughs> he just was going down, took the offer up and said, nah, I'm not going to go through that structure. He had his own interpretation of scripture and he made it clear, very clear publicly, his interpretation was superior to any other. I am right. They are wrong. The hearers proclaim he has authority. They cede it to him. They hear him speak and say, wow, look at this guy. He teaches like one who has authority, not like the scribes. And as Jesus is preaching, the people around him are amazed and they don't know what to make of him. They're marveling at his wisdom, his delivery. And then at the end of his sermon, instead of the praise band coming up to do a great song, he takes on evil instead. There's a man with unclean spirits, and the spirits inside this man, they know exactly who Jesus is. They actually have a better understanding of who Jesus is than Jesus' own family. After authoritative, captivating teaching, he displays his authority by healing this demon-possessed man in church. Don't start looking around, people, all right? I know what you're thinking. <laughs> What, you say? Demons in church? Oh, you betcha. Imagine what the scribes who were actually in charge of that synagogue thought about what had been in their place this whole time. People are stunned. They're amazed. Stunned at what Jesus says. Stunned at what Jesus does. They're stunned by one particular thing. His authority. The whole region is abuzz. Who is this? Where did he come from? How did he do that? It's like nothing they've ever seen. <laughs> but just wait, they ain't seen nothing yet. That's the history. Let's talk about the spiritual. I want to talk about authority on display. So I had a couple, uh, Mark the Evangelist did some tweets this week, and he found some, he's finally got his camera to work on the phone. He got some pictures. He was complaining about the Instagram filters on this one. It looks like a painting because of the filter, so... But um, he says, my opinion, this is the best teacher ever. People are amazed. Then he tweets about the demon. He says, can't believe it. He told the demon to, demon to zip it and come out of him. Can't help but wonder how long the demon had been going to that synagogue. 
snapped another pig. So let me just give you a little bit of a, a quick Greek word study. There's a word in this passage, exthusia. That's the Greek word. It means superior to man or other spiritual authorities. The sign of regal authority or a crown. So it means authority that is above all others. It is actually the root word of exceti, which means it is lawful or it is permitted or permission granted. So what we see here in this word is that Jesus had lawful authority granted to him. He has a lawful authority from God to be the authority on Scripture. He is acting with the highest of authority from the express permission from the Father. Unlike the scribes, whose authority depends upon their knowledge of the teachings of others and an adherence to man-made tradition. No, Jesus has authority that is free from the burdens of religious tradition or wisdom as understood by other men. The scribes and the rabbis, they would always debate what is truth, who is right, what's wrong. Jesus says, the debate's over. I have the answers. And my father has given me the permission. Matter of fact, in, first, in John chapter 12, 49, here's what Jesus says. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. This is why Jesus' authority is so prevalent. He wasn't just a great communicator. Of course, he was that. But he is a great communicator combined with divine authority. His words are truth itself, superior to all others. And what he does in this story is he displays authority in two very distinct ways, yet they feed on one another. First of all, he is an authority in truth. While scribes rehash old rabbinical sermons and Talmud writings, the same old, dull, boring, religious message of service and certitude to the temple, Jesus comes in and doesn't rely on someone else's work to garner credibility. Unlike rabbis, he needs no other human sources to cite. He's teaching something fresh, something new, something liberating with expressed sanction from the Father. His teaching was absolute. It was logical, concrete, reasonable, systematic, not evasive, mystical, political, or muddled. He taught on essential issues, not trivial ramblings. He used clear illustrations and had a progression of thought that you could not break down. No double talk or allegory. They have never heard anything like this. And neither had the demons. So that's his authority and truth. But then he displays his authority over evil. So just to give you a little background to understand, demons, evil spirits, they prefer to stay undercover. They don't want exposure. But when Jesus shows up, they panic. All through the New Testament, in fact, especially the Gospels, demons are taken by surprise when Jesus shows up. They never seek him out. They say out loud, you are the son of God. 
And when they said that, Jesus says, zip it, buddy, and leave. There's no debate between him and the demons. No negotiation. No religious rite or Catholic process. No prayer. No exorcism. Nothing like that. It's just absolute, immediate, direct authority over evil. Shut up and leave. They were already stunned by his preaching, these people. And now they're stunned by his authority over the demon they didn't even know had been going to their church all this time. They didn't know the demons had been there until they heard the authority of Jesus' preaching. And when Jesus shows up, these demons are in absolute fear. They know what his presence means. It means the kingdom of God is now. The kingdom is here. The king is on display. And they know the kingdom of God means this. It means the ultimate death for evil, be it philosophical evil, physical evil, or spiritual evil. It's all running scared. The king's authority over the demons is a confirmation of his teaching authority and vice versa. His authority over the demons is confirmation of his teaching and his teaching is confirmation of his authority over demons. It all works together in this incredible display. His authority has been put on display to prepare the hearts to hear the message and trust it implicitly over all others. So that's the spiritual side. Now let's talk about the personal. I wanna, I've entitled this section Safe and Secure, but we won't get to that for a few minutes. This was the um, social media campaign this week. Evil is currently actively seeking to have both subtle and obvious influence on the church. How long do you think the demons had been going to that synagogue? Do you think maybe they were going to others or just that one? Why would they be in that place? I mean, at least they're talking about God, right? Hmm. What made them comfortable there? Lurking undetected. What were they accomplishing by being there until Jesus shows up? See, there is a reason the demons were comfortable in the synagogues before Jesus went. These places had a veneer of spiritual authority a facade of spiritual authority, but they really had none. It was empty of authority. Oh, it was carrying authority that men saw, but spiritually they had none. People were worshiping there. They were comfortable, easy targets. The message they were entrusting their souls to was foolishness, powerless to save them. Yet there they were, week after week, day after day, with evil in tow. Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So you understand the role of the church today correlates directly with the role of the synagogues in Jesus' time, right? It's the same thing. People gathering together to worship God. It's the same reason evil could be comfortable in many churches today. So, yeah. Many consider talking about 
things like evil spirits is off limits. Especially in church. It's too negative. I know Joel Osteen would never talk about it. I'm not joking. I'm serious. He wouldn't talk about it. As a result, we sing Jesus is king, but then we cordon off his authority so it doesn't make ourselves or others feel comfortable, especially when we talk about things like this. As a result, we get sermons barely mentioning Christ. Maybe it's part of an object lesson or to promote a political or social or religious ideology. And we leave out the authority of Christ, which is he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We leave that out in salvation and repentance. It's what we call deconstructionists, and they're nuts. Church is trying to deconstruct the faith and the gospel of Jesus, saying, well, yeah, it's not a bad option. I think evil's very comfortable with those types of sermons. And the focus becomes weak, feeble, one-sided, positive mental attitude messages that make you feel good, inspire you to take on Monday morning, coffee or no, but does nothing to transform you. Nothing. Powerless. Then... When that takes place, evil is free to create distractions and passions that detract from eternity. Politics, money, earthly success, and yes, I'm afraid, sometimes even religious liturgy. They had a full dose of it in the synagogues. Yet the demons were comfortable. All that stuff I just listed, politics, money, earthly success, liturgy, you realize it's all the same stuff? Demons used to distract people in the synagogues before Jesus showed up. It's the same stuff, same story, same tactics. These forces of evil are constantly arrayed everywhere against the kingdom of God. And for good reason. James 2.19, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons know who God is. They are not under any personal deception about the fact that God is ruler of the universe, kingdom of God, notwithstanding. It's foolish for us not to recognize that evil is active and alive. In fact, possibly in this room in some form or fashion. It could be in demonic form like this story, or maybe it's in human form. Here's the problem. We can't know unless it reveals itself. We are powerless to understand it all. We can't even see a glimpse of what the spiritual realm is doing right now. Okay, all right, let me comfort you. Because <laughs> there is good news here. The fact of the matter is, children of God who believe that Jesus, is, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through him, that understand the cross and the resurrection and the gospel, we don't have to live in fear of what lurks around each corner. I'm going to take a quote from C.S. Lewis who really explains this dynamic quite well. From his book, from the Screwtape Letters, here's what he says on Satan. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. 
They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Isn't that good? See, I need to stop attributing these quotes to the author and just say they're mine. <laughs> the safe harbor of the authority of Jesus allows us to both acknowledge evil and at the same time live in liberty free from its power. Aren't you glad? Because the authority of Jesus' teaching and his power over the spiritual realm is the ultimate haven for restless, fearful, anxious souls like ours. We did a long study on the book of 1 John. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There is immense comfort, freedom, and safety resting within the authority of the words and truth and teaching and power of our Jesus. 1 John 2.14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Who's the word of God? John 1.1 is Jesus In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It says, and the Word of God, Jesus, abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Jesus knows what's going on in this spiritual realm. Even when we have no idea what's happening around us, with Jesus in charge... We're good. He has complete, utter, immediate, undeniable dominion over these spirits and this force we call evil. Not only that, he has the antidote for the evil that resides in our very own hearts. Even today, just as the synagogue people were, we should be absolutely stunned and amazed by him. By his clear, truthful, powerful, authoritative teaching. We find both awe and comfort in his unlimited spiritual authority in truth and over the real forces of evil. The only place for fear is when we begin to separate ourselves from the safe harbor that is the authority of Jesus and the word he speaks. Jesus, you don't need us to say this, but we're going to. We cede all authority to you. Every drop of it. We have no idea what's going on around us the battle that we fight among spiritual authorities in high places. We don't know what they're doing, what they look like, what they're saying, but we know what you say. And that is our safe harbor. That is our home. That is our comfort. That is our peace in a world that is teeming with both spiritual and human evil. Our souls rest on your goodness and mercy and righteousness and your judgment. Help us, Father, any moment we have a sense or a tingling of darkness. Help us to run 
to you immediately, directly into the safe arms of your authority.